I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and this is going to be, I think, a particularly fun episode. So we have a man who is a stand-up comedian, a writer, a podcaster, an actor, and a drinker of whiskey. Welcome to the podcast from Canada. Welcome, Paul Bay. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. This is exciting. This, this is, is a good coffee. way to end my workday. So talking with that, sometimes in these episodes, we don't drink the whiskey until later on, but I've had a hell of a day and it's the end of your workday as well. Um, so let's just crack on with whiskey straight away. So I think you've, you're over-prepared because you seem to have two whiskeys at your end. So tell me what you've got, Paul. So, so I should clarify, I, I jokingly showed uh, two bottles of whiskey to you uh, to show you what I'm going to be drinking during this, but it's, this is what I... This is what I would have drank tonight anyways. So I'm starting off. I got a few drops of the Nikka uh, coffee barrel malt whiskey from Japan. Yep. Uh, and then, because I, I like that sweet, that sweet uh, space side stuff. And then I'm going to move on to the more peaty uh, Ardbeg 10-year. Uh, um, I'm not a huge fan of the peat, but uh, I, got, I keep getting these as gifts. People think I like peat for some reason. So I got to get rid of it. <laughs> it's funny, actually. Whiskey giving... Um, it's a really interesting thing. So I've got a friend, I remember he's an actor and I went to his house and I looked in his whiskey selection behind his little bar and he had loads of bottles. So I, I said to him one day, do you want to come on the podcast? He's like, oh no, no, I don't, I don't drink whiskey. I'm like, why have you got like 20 bottles of whiskey? He's like, oh, just people give them to you at rap parties and as thank yous for reading scripts. So it, is, is there so much money in entertainment that just giving good bottles of whiskey is perfectly normal? I, I have yet to receive a bottle from someone in entertainment. This is all from people like like a, a for, my friend who's a former like you, a former diplomat. He's the one that brought me my bottle of Yamaza, Yamazaki eighteen. Uh, I, I got one from a uh, English teacher who brought me. Just very generous friends. That every time they go somewhere, they want to come back. We haven't seen each other in a while. They know I'll think of them every time I taste something. <laughs> yeah, very good. And I, I mean, I, I established a pattern quite early on where we'd go for dinner at someone's house and normally you take a bottle of wine and I'd always take a bottle of whiskey and it is an expensive habit but fortunately we didn't get invited to that many dinner parties but and the reason I did it is exactly that is because it lasts you know you don't just drink it that night it will be on their shelf for a couple of years I went to a Christmas party at a friend of mine's house and he's got a really lovely bar but I think half a dozen of the bottles on his bar were things I'd brought him at various dinner parties or Christmas parties. And it's quite nice because even if he doesn't exactly remember, he knows, he thinks he knows which whiskeys I bought him. And I think that's quite a nice way of, like you say, remembering people. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm, I'm very sentimental with these kinds of things. So I remember when um, uh, my graduating class for when I used to be an English teacher, one of my uh, classes, 
they were they were graduating. So the graduating students, uh, they they got it out of me because I remember one day this student was like, "Mr. Bay, you look like a whiskey drinker." I'm like, "Yeah, on weekends." He goes, "Yeah, you look like a PD drinker." And they're getting all this information. Anyways, they ended up sneaking into a li uh, liquor store, getting one of their bearded, the oldest looking grade twelve student to get to get a bottle of whiskey, and they all signed it. They gave it to me, and then one of the students pr proceeded to explain how they got it. Like he gave ten dollars, she gave twenty dollars, he gave five, and like they actually broke it down. I didn't need to know that. Wow. But I wrote down all their all their names, and it's a, every time I look at that, I think about, well, wow, these kids really knew me. <laughs> That's extraordinary. I'm not sure <laughs> saying which kid gave the least money is all that fair, but still, um, no, because I I uh, I love giving engraved bottles to people. That's one of my things. So for people's birthdays, for weddings, we give them engraved bottles of whiskey, and it's and a business thing I do a lot with deals with companies when we we do deals with people is we give them a bottle of whiskey and it will say, you know, to open at whatever event we're working with them on. And, you know, it's a, it's there. Sometimes people don't drink it. That's the only problem because it's engraved and they think they should keep it, but it does make it more memorable. So, um, yeah. What are you drinking there? I see the so, edge of the yeah, bottle. So I've got something a little sweet as well. So I've got a bottle of red breast Lustau, which is a little bit sweeter than I'm, I normally drink, but it, somebody gave it to me at some point during lockdown and it became just a very nice, in the Californian heat, just a very nice whiskey to drink at the end of the evening. So I thought I'd pour one of those. So cheers to you. Cheers, fantastic. Um, so, right, we should probably do some actual questions. Um, so I think I'll tell you where I'm going to start. You obviously are incredibly successful, podcasting in particular. Um, but I actually want to ask an acting question because when I was looking through your credits, I couldn't help but notice you appeared as an actor in the famous or infamous, not sure how we describe it, movie, The Interview, which brought down a movie studio security system and changed many things about life in Hollywood. So tell me about your role in The Interview. That 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 was a that was a pleasure, but it was also a headache for my parents because my parents are both born in North Korea and they escaped as children. So they they especially my mother, she's very paranoid that we're always being watched. Uh, whenever I'm do something public, she always reminds me, you know, don't when I do a comedy, she goes, You don't joke about North Korea, do you? I'm like, no, but why would I be scared of that? She thinks they're watching my jokes. So she was afraid of black vans. She actually mentioned, watch out for black vans after you do this movie. They they might have hacked your address. She heard about the hacking. And I guess women at her church got into her ear and said, you should watch your son, warn him. <laughs> so uh, I had quit acting because uh, I was doing more stand-up comedy and I was uh, doing other things. And then my agent called me that Seth Rogen was doing a movie. He wanted to do this movie, his hometown. It was about North Korea and he wanted to cast Koreans. Um, if it was in LA, there's tons of Koreans in acting, but in Vancouver, there are not. There, there's a lot of Asians, but he wanted specifically Koreans. And so uh, they said, can you come out and try it? The, the audition was hilarious because I got my dad to translate the English words into Korean for this scene. And there's two major like uncles to Seth Rogen, uh, to uh, 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 Randall Park's character, the leader of North Korea. And I was to play the more talkative one. So I went in, did my Korean thing, and then I I forgot for some reason. Uh, I'm I'm not that good at speaking Korean. I forgot how to say the lines in Korean. But there were all white people in the audience. So I started rolling off Korean menu items. So in the middle of a sentence, I just started going, ah, which just means ribs and noodles. That's what I just said, ribs and noodles. But I said it very angrily. I, my agent called me after. He goes, you nailed it. The room loved it. I'm like, 
are they going to translate my, you go, oh yeah, they're going to, they're going to vet you. Uh, anyways, they got me. I show up. I'm a different character. I'm the one who doesn't talk. <laughs> so they were worried you'd ruin the movie by just listing yeah, your they, favorite foods. Oh, they were right onto me. So they, I'm suddenly the guy who doesn't talk, but I get the big death scene. Uh, the, 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 I get my head blown off. That was a lot of fun. But yeah, it was 10 days on set. I uh, got to hang out. I knew I, where I, was, I was friends with a lot of the people there. I got to be friends with Randall Park. Uh, from that experience, because him and Diana, the, the the who plays Seth Rogen's love interest, um, we just we there was nothing else to do all day. Movie sets, there's a lot of waiting, so we just hung out all day, and we did it's, uh, friendships formed uh, that that uh, week and a half. When you were working on it, did did any of you realize what was going to happen? No, not at all. We were just having a we we're just having a great time. Um, it, it it's a, it's. It's hard to explain the experience of being an actor for a while and then suddenly being an actor with so many Koreans and Asians on set, like just hanging around. I'd never had that experience before. And it was just a lovely thing to sort of soak in uh, for every meal, <laughs> just for, for these free meals with, 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 with uh, actors who never get a chance at anything. So it's it just, that's all we were doing, just enjoying each other's company. And, th- and then, of course, when that happened, the news broke about the, the whole Sony hacking and all that kind of stuff and uh, the, the politics involved. Um, I, we didn't really talk to each other about it. It was one of those things like we just all looked at each other and said, yeah, <laughs> that was something. So your, 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 your mother was right. Your, your mother's right to worry about these things, clearly. But, <laughs> you know, despite everything that went on in the Western world, an offensive movie was enough to motivate the team of state-sponsored hackers to bring down a movie studio. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, I think that was the start of the Me Too movement. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, amazing. So, look, um, and it's interesting because I that movie, I had I don't think I remember having any interest in watching it until this whole thing happened. And I'm like, I've got to see why <laughs> it was worth hacking for. Um and I imagine, because obviously they think they released it as a streamer, didn't they? After, yes, yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I didn't get, I didn't get the theatrical release. I think, um, yeah, it's a, I, I, I can't imagine it being that big of a deal. I think he would have been sort of honored, uh, the North Korean leader to see himself like so vaunted and being played by such a fine actor. Uh, <laughs> I, I imagine. Yeah, no good. I mean, it's good. You know, you are. It will follow you everywhere that you were part of. Even if you all you did was have your blown your head blown off and you weren't allowed to speak, you're still part of movie history. Yeah, it's, it's great. And and there's a scene where um, uh, there's a huge portrait of me at my funeral in the movie. So I called up the studio to try to get that get that portrait. And my wife's like, "What are we going to do with that? There's no room in our. We lived in a condo at the time. But there's no room in our condo for that portrait." And I'm like, "What?" I just want it at the foot. There's one space at the foot of our bed. And she goes, we are not putting your huge head at the foot of our bed in a North Korean military garb. <laughs> Amazing. So where is it just in a props warehouse somewhere or taken down? Yeah, I or... think they painted over it. They paint over and over and over. They just reuse it. Shame. Shame. Because those of you who follow you on social media will see that you've actually got quite a nice deck that you are often pictured with your dogs on. Actually, that would be great just to have a oh. big image of yourself you know, you've got the countryside, the mountains, and then big picture of you in uniform would be amazing. Oh, one, one day I'm going to recreate it too. <laughs> so, when so, my wife's away. <laughs> so this is the part of the podcast where all the people who listen who like podcasts are going to get upset because as a podcast, I've got three podcasts, and 
they're all, you know, independently run podcasts and some are doing better than others. But every so often the host sends you emails saying, congratulations, you've reached 500 downloads. Congratulations, you've reached whatever it is, you know, and a couple of them are past 10,000. And, you know, that's exciting because of what they are and how new some of them are. You have had for your podcasts, how many, how many tens of millions of downloads? I think for the uh, black tapes, we 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 just hit fifty. We're about to hit fifty million, like any day yeah. now. Uh, and the big loop is just about to hit a million any day now. That's that's a lot. Yeah, especially big loop only got twelve episodes, and the black tapes only has thirty. So per episode, uh, someone told me that the black tapes has the most downloads per episode of any modern audio drama. I don't know if that's true, though. Someone told me that, that from the BBC. It's extraordinary. And look, I mean, this is as a, it's a sort of slightly geeky podcast question, but when the podcasts were launched, were you interested in the download numbers or did, or did someone just tell you when it got to a big number? Or were you sort of like, because you can track these things in a way that people on Netflix say they never know how well their shows did. Like you can literally see where people listen at what time of day. Were you interested in all that stuff or were you above all that? Well, this is going to piss off the podcasters that listen to this now because I never knew how to look at those numbers uh, while we did the black tapes. Um, I didn't even know how to make a podcast while we did the black tapes. My partner, Terry, was in charge of all that. He did all the mixing and that we directed together. We did the scripting and the acting, but he took care of all the technical side and uploading it. And so when I took his advice and did my solo podcast, The Big Loop, um, I had to call him and say, okay, I recorded it. How do I get it from this Zoom machine to people's phones. He goes, oh, we have a host. I go, what's a host? And he was like, Libsyn. He had, to, he, had to, he had to walk me through the whole thing. And that's when I, for the first time, saw the Black Tapes numbers. And I was like, holy crap. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, man. I go, I didn't know we are doing that well. <laughs> Extraordinary. I mean, you know, that will, uh, like any hobby, because most podcasters are hobbyists. And it's fascinating. As I've done more podcasts, I've learned the numbers. So, you know, if your podcast is getting 500 to 700 listens per episode, you're in the top 5% of podcasts. Now, obviously, it gets very steep because if to get into the top handful, you're into the millions of downloads. But sort of 90% of podcasts get like 20 listens, 50 listens. It's just sort of people and their families. Um, but people love those. I know people who check every day. So the fact that you manage to get into the millions without knowing how to check is really going to annoy some people, I think. I think so. <laughs> Even now I check because we, what we should have done is, you know, for it's a boring podcast talk, I should have, we should have monetized it as soon as we stopped producing episodes because we were still getting, two years later after our last episode, we were still getting 30,000 downloads a day, which means had I got that... Uh, uh, um, dynamic insertion technology, if we moved host to someone that could do that, uh, we would have been making so much money. But Terry and I were so busy, um, you know, we'd have to rip out the ads because it was organically put in. We'd have to, it was a lot of work and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't want to ask Terry to take him out of his busy schedule to do it. And so we're like, okay, well, I guess that's just that. <laughs> so how does one go from stand-up comedian, part-time Korean head blown off actor to having one of the most listened to scripted podcasts in the world? It's a combination of desperation and luck. Uh, the desperation of not wanting a full-time day job. Uh, it, I think that drives a lot of artists to try different things. 
And I was, when I started acting, the, my first ever acting gig was in my, Terry, Terry Miles, the co-creator of the Black Tapes who went on to do Tannis and Rabbits and the last movie. He, that was his first movie. So I was his, I was my first time acting in Terry's first movie. And we became friends through that. And then he had a, he became quite well known in the indie movie scene in Canada. Um, and between breaks of movies, he knew I wrote a lot and he said, Hey, um, do you want to write something together? Uh, give me your five best ideas. He knew I, I, I generated ideas like crazy. So I gave him the five best. And at first he'd like this one about, uh, these kids hanging out in an arcade. It's a comedy kids hanging out in an arcade in the eighties. But then he's, he's, his eye was drawn to this other one called the black tape. Just one about a ghost hunter doesn't believe in ghosts. He goes, let's try that. So he wrote a screenplay in five days. Gave it to his agent, and then two years later, we're like, I guess, I guess no one's likes the, the screenplay, <laughs> or he hasn't taken it out. Nothing happened, and out of desperation, we just turned it into uh, a podcast. When Serial hit, like that gave us the model. Let's let's fictionalize a, a a journalist who inserts herself into the story and becomes a player in her own story. Yeah, and that was our way in. It was just luck that we happened to think about it because of Serial. Um, you know how it is. Like if, if you're the first in anything. Uh, you, you become popular because there's nothing else. Like you're filling a vacuum. And right after us was Limetown, Bright Sessions. There's one after the other. That class of 2015 was huge. And because of that, anything we put out afterwards would get tons of downloads just because of the feed, the way the podcasting works. If we, if we started now, no way, with the exact same show, uh, there's no way we would have the success. So that's what I mean by the luck and then the yeah. desperation of, of doing this because the screenplay wasn't working. So you, so you literally did it on a podcast just because there's no barrier to entry and you thought no one would make it. So you just, it's like people directing a movie on their iPhone because they can't wait for someone to buy it. Yeah. Terry's one of those guys that uh, uh, whatever resources he gets, uh, whether it's another credit card or one of the, you know, he's one of those indie film directors that will find a way to make movies. He's find a way to do things. And he'd been podcasting for, I think a decade before. Uh, like he was one of those guys, early adopters. And he'd been bugging me to do a podcast. I didn't understand what a podcast was. And he had to sort of show me with uh, 99% Invisible. And then, um, yeah, I just, and just, just by, by luck and desperation, that, that's what we went into. There, there is that still that um, barrier to entry, but for, compared to TV or anything like that, it's, it's, it's low. And, and back then, the barrier to being found was very low because there was not a lot of audio drama moved over to the podcast space compared to today. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think you're right. Well, in fact, you are definitely right that if you did exactly the same thing with exactly the same material, it would be lost. Because, you know, the whole podcast, every podcaster thinks that they've got that they're the next Joe Rogan, that, you know, if only people could listen to this, they'd know. And in some ways, that's no different to every WGA writer thinking that if only somebody would make my script, it will be the next, you know, it'd be the next lost or it'll be the next big movie. And now obviously not every podcaster is right to think that their podcast is brilliant, but there's some great ones out there that no one listens to because yeah. there's a discovery problem. So I guess, as you say, you got in at the right, at the right time. Yeah. And you, you, the quality now, if you're, if you're releasing something now, like, you know, I love making the black tapes. Um, but you know, we were, we were winging it in terms of like production and, you know, like we, we, we record on location, tell the actors, meet us at this forest. <laughs> we just do it. And it was all recorded on a zoom recorder. So you it picked up every single sound. Even our studio stuff was on a zoom. We used one mic cause we couldn't afford, you know, 
uh, one of these fancy mics that we're using today. Um, it, it's crazy what we're doing. We're using the free Audacity program for all of for all of that to mix all of this. And you know, um, it's because of Terry's mixing genius. He's he's been doing it for years that yeah. it sounds professional. But you know, the standard's so much higher now that we'd have to. Uh, you know, we we I think we got away with murder in some of the things we were doing uh, in season uh, like late season two, uh, for example. Uh, yeah. But it, 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 to do it today, we uh, to get attention, it, we'd have to like we'd have to spend months just preparing the scripts right? instead of the way we're doing it right now. Hey, this is fun. It was, it was just all in the spirit of fun. Uh, and, you know, we call attention to the screenplay. We're just having so much fun just working together and scaring each other. Amazing. So now tell me about your transition to TV writing, because obviously you're still podcasting, but you're now legitimately becoming part of the real TV writing world, having done it the... <laughs> You know, you cheated a bit at the beginning to sort of put it out there, but now you're actually doing it the real way. So tell me about how that's all played out. That and it's, that happened from the black tapes, like well, one day. And this is this is the luck again. Um, when we made the black tapes, we didn't have money to, of course, for ads or anything. So we said, let's make sure we market it in our own, like in the podcast. As a ghost hunter doesn't believe in ghosts, it's, we, we need it so that people will talk about our show at Halloween parties. And we had Halloween coming up. We're like, we need to get to this amount by that point. And what ended up happening was, I guess, uh, uh, word got around and, you know, and then we got, a, we got an email from someone who said he was an assistant to a, a major manager. Uh, and he's been, this assistant had been obsessed with us driving in LA from home to work, stuck in traffic. And uh, do we have representation? We said, no. Uh, he said, okay, well, and then the manager flew up with some showrunners. Uh, and that person ended up being, uh, was Guyman Cassidy, who's the manager to the showrunners of Game of Thrones, uh, the terror season one. Uh, he's, he's got so many, he's my manager now, <laughs> like he's my man. Um, but he, at first he was just like manager slash producer. He only wanted the black tapes. So, you know, everything was black tapes. I mean, get it on sale. And then, uh, I guess this is the first time I'm ever going to say this on a podcast. So you're the first one I'm telling this to publicly. Um, while I went down to LA to pitch the black tapes or to, to write the pitch with the showrunner, I got contacted by somebody. Um, I shouldn't say the entity, but it's one of the, one of the big four networks about the big loop. And they said, would you want, can we talk about the big loop? And I said, okay, let's talk about the big loop. Uh, which episode they told me. And then next thing I know, I'm telling the showrunner, I go, I'm meeting, I'm meeting so-and-so. He goes, why are you meeting so-and-so? I go, well, I'm meeting him tomorrow. He goes, dude, that's not a general. That's a pitch. You're pitching the big loop tomorrow. So I went in and I pitched it and I sold uh, a version of it to this. And then I told my manager at the next morning, we were going to pitch. I go, Hey, sorry. Uh, the next summer I go, I sold it. He goes, what do you mean you sold it? I go, I, my other podcast. I don't think he even knew I had another podcast, right? Cause I, I was just this quiet guy who helped, helped make the black tapes. And I understand he's, he's a busy guy. I didn't want to bug him. I didn't want to tell him I write other things, right? Like he's so obsessed with the black. I was just grateful to be in his, in his stable. But then I showed him I could do other things. And he, I think that's what put me on his radar. Like, huh, Paul can, Paul can actually pitch. And then he saw me pitch the black tapes and we sold it in the room. He's like, Oh, Paul can pitch too. I didn't know that. And he took me to the side. He goes, where have you been hiding all this? I'm like, I didn't want to bug you, man. You know, I used to be a stand-up comic. I'm used to talking. <laughs> and, he, and then, and then, and yeah, then it just snowballed from there. So that's how I made my way into TV just through extreme luck. And then just biding my time and just taking these opportunities and just sort of like 
uh, not winging it, but I got lucky that my showrunner told me, hey, you're pitching this tomorrow. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a general. Then I got lucky that they liked me. Um, I got lucky that my manager took notice of me uh, at that time. Like any of those pieces moves and I'm not where I am today. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. So you've sold the shows that you made as podcasts. They'll, versions of those will end up being TV series now. Yeah, the black tapes, well, we got that back. They didn't, NBC passed on it. Yeah. But my manager, you know, it's expired. So my manager now wants to take it out again. Yeah. Uh, because because it's 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 a big property. In terms of numbers and audience, it's a big property. Uh, the Big Loop, I still have a bunch of episodes that are available. Um, so uh, people are talking to me right now about those other episodes. Uh, so yeah, it's, exci- it's exciting. And then I got this other one <laughs> I, I took out and I sold to... Uh, this new podcast company, production company. And while they were talking about the deal last year, um, this this network uh, heard about it from my agent and I pitched it to them. And so they took it back. They said, we want to turn that into a TV show. So I had to take it from the podcast company because I was creating it as an IP to turn into a TV show. So I didn't have to make the podcast now. Now I'm, now I'm just making the TV show, which is what I'm working on this week, uh, the pilot. Um, yeah. So then there's something else. I, I can't talk about the other one because that's, there's a press release coming for that one, but it's a comedy. Anyways, I've been very, very lucky that things have been rolling, uh, in this manner. Are you, obviously you, you, you became good at the podcasting almost by mistake. Like you didn't even know what podcasting <laughs> was while you were podcasting. Are you, are you like the TV world's a real scary world that pe- some people have spent 10 years Uber driving, trying to get into it. Are you are you worried about that transition, or are you just like, well, if I can podcast without knowing what podcasting is, I can TV without knowing what TV is? No, with TV, uh, and this is why I'm grateful for podcasting because it's such a very distinct world with its own unspoken rules um, that are almost like these invisible barriers to entry and these invisible tests. But because of all these writing podcasts, one of them being yours, but you know, I, I listened to yours as I was in the industry, but there's ones before like writer's panel. Um, uh, well, there's so many of them that I would listen to showrunners and they would explain the world. So I would, I would slowly prepare myself that this is what it's going to be like. Um, but you know, I, I, I should tell you when I was a stand-up comedian, that was my whole goal was to do stand-up com- comedy. Cause I've been a writer since early twenties, maybe when I turned 20. And so my goal was, Someone's going to notice me. They're going to see I'm good at stand-up, uh, build a sitcom around me, and that's when I'm going to show how good of a writer I am. In 2004, I got invited by Jay Leno's people to do The Tonight Show. So I flew down to LA. Um, I got invited to do a show called uh, Death, Death, uh, Comedy Death Ray at the, this legendary one-nighter uh, uh, one, one, uh, one in a week. It's called N-Bar. Uh, the, the night before, Sarah Silverman, Patton Oswalt, Greg Proops, uh, like, uh, like everybody was there. And then I go up and I stunk. I stunk so bad. And I thought I was on fire. I've been doing stand-up comedy for four years. I was so bad anyways. And the next day I had to go to NBC to meet them. And I was like, I was thinking, I hope they didn't hear about my set. Uh, so I went and met them. They were, I thought they were impressed. They sent me back to Vancouver and absolutely nothing happened. I didn't get the tonight show. I didn't get cast in anything. Uh, I didn't get invited back. Um, someone, when I, before my comedy show, they go, we'll be watching you. We're thinking of casting you as the teacher in this new sitcom. I'm going, great. Afterwards, uh, I tried to sit with them 
and they go, sorry, it's taken. That's how bad my set was. Like they wouldn't let me sit at the table and, uh. but they said, come find us after your set. And that's, that's when I realized, oh, this, so this is Hollywood. I just got, I learned in one hour what Hollywood is like in, in a 24 hour cycle. I went from the hottest guy to yeah, have fun in Vancouver. So I came back to Vancouver and, 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 you know, I'd left teaching already. Um, so I just went back to doing acting stand up, and eventually went back to teaching again because I was getting so burnt out by all that stuff. Um, but through teaching, you know, I was still writing. I hurt my back. That's when Terry came to visit me because he wanted to visit his injured buddy. And that's how we came up with the black tapes. So it's all like what I, what I, I'm not saying it just as a, uh, as a, as a signal. Oh, I'm humble. I'm, I'm crediting luck. I, I literally mean it's luck that all these, all mm. these things happen that way. I, I love, I love that story. It's so, it's such a Hollywood thing to happen to somebody. And I, you know, I've lived in LA for seven years now and the first four I was a diplomat and everyone was super nice to me and invited me to lots of things. And then I spent three years in the private sector. Yeah, people care a bit less about me. And it's really interesting. <laughs> it is such, it's such a febrile place here. Like one minute, everyone wants to invite you to things. And the next minute, in your case, literally, they wouldn't let you sit with them, which I think is yeah. just, says so much about, frankly, what's wrong with this town. Um, but there you go. Extraordinary. But, but I, I love your... Your whole thing about luck. I mean, we've always, I've always been a big proponent of to be successful in any career, you have to have two things. You have to be good and you have to be lucky because there are plenty of people who are presented opportunities, but don't take them because they're not good enough, but things could have happened to them. And there are plenty of people who are very, very good, but they just never get the opportunities. So you do need both things. So much as I, you know, as an English person particularly, which is why we love Canadians. I love that you're humble about this because there is some luck there, but the luck wouldn't have meant anything if you weren't also particularly funny, good at writing and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm lucky that I had those opportunities. I got chance after chance. Like after 2004, I thought, well, that's it. I've read enough of these stories. I know how this goes. That was my chance and I blew it. And I went back to Vancouver and and now and I think about it now. It's like, you know, I I sold being back at NBC to sell the black tapes uh, after being rejected by them in 2004 by by the casting department. And now I'm in a higher department uh, selling something. Uh, and then you know, and also Mbar. Um, I, I don't think she'll mind me saying this. Sarah Silverman reached out a, a little while ago, like just to DM me about something, uh, a nice compliment. And I said, hey. Do you remember me from Mbar in 2004? She goes, what happened? And I told her about the night and she didn't remember it. She, she told me, um, you know, no one remembers those things. We're comics. We all suck at one night. Right? No one cares. Uh, but she goes, but that's a funny story. And I, I'm, I'm thinking, but I needed that. Like I needed to hear from somebody who was there. Like, yeah, we don't, don't worry about that. Cause it's sort of like one of those things that sticks in my craw yeah. as how many people saw that, saw me suck that night. Cause it was really bad. <laughs> so look, I, I admire your podcasting. Um, I'm impressed by your whiskey collection. You are, as I'm learning on this podcast, a fantastically articulate guest. There is one, one thing I have to say that I, I'm not impressed by. Why do you drink White Claw? <laughs> That's, it gets so hot sitting out on my deck sometimes. And my wife makes martinis. She's learned to make martinis in the last little while. I think last year, and she's so good at it, but they're so potent. Uh, I find White Claw an easy drink. Uh, beer, um, 
I, I'm, I'm over 50 now. So it's at the point I can't drink beer. It just, it just doesn't, doesn't leave my gut the way it used to. It stays in my body. So I've had to find alternatives. I can't do whiskey in a hot, like, cause I I'll drink it way too fast because the heat white claw is the low calorie option. Uh, and it, it tastes almost like that St. Cross stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. <laughs> so, I mean, look, you know, I, I probably shouldn't malign a very popular brand of hard seltzer, but um, I just seeing, you know, you've got this amazing deck and these beautiful dogs and this great writing space. And then you make these videos and you're <laughs> pouring, you know, and I, I have offered to send you something else, but I'm not sure what the cross border rules are, but whenever you come to LA, I'll, I will give you some of the, if you have to drink seltzer and I get the whole beer thing, I'm not, not yet 50, although I think my body thinks I am. And Beer doesn't quite, as you say, sit with me how it used to, which is why I'm, I've become very much a whiskey and tequila man. But there is a seltzer <laughs> that I've found that is not white claw that is is does the same job. So I'll make sure to get you some of that. That'll work. So I mean, social media is never the right way of looking at people's lives, but you seem to sort of, you seem to have, and I know social media is is about making your life look better than it really is. But you know, you've got this. You live in a beautiful part of the world. And although you're working in Hollywood increasingly, you're not stuck living in it and the traffic. You've got a great writing space. You've got wonderful animals around you. It does seem like you've got the sort of perfect creative space. Is that just an Instagram depiction of your life or actually is that real life for you? Yeah, I have to remind you, I don't have children. Like my wife and I always talk about that. Like that would have changed everything for us. Um, I think part of the reason early on when we knew this was serious, I asked her, I'm like, do you ever want kids? She said, no. She was you. I went, no, I've never wanted kids. Uh, I think that we're just one of, we're just that type of person that we just, there are people that don't want kids. And we, that's, that's, that's what stuck us together. And then we were lucky in finding this place because we, we got renovated and we were, we would have been happy just renting for the rest of our lives. You know, before I met her, it's funny because, um, I used to tell my friends as a joke when I was a comedian, I'm like, uh, because I, I used to rent out my parents' basement and it was really like low ceiling. There's really, it's $325 a month. Um, they kicked out their old tenant for me because <laughs> he was, he was, he was, he was, uh, he almost burned down the house once. So I, uh, I said, can I live there? I need to, I need to save more money. I'm a stand up comedian now and not a teacher. And so I'm living there. Um, and, and they're like, you know, dude, how are you going to find anybody? Like you're a divorce guy as a stand up co- comedian, barely making any money, living in your parents' basement in your 30s. Oh, who are you? I said, I want to find somebody while I'm poor who doesn't give a shit about anything. And so I met my wife um, who, who, you know, just very successful uh, at her age. Uh, and then it was like, she met me, saw my place. I'm like, what the hell? Uh, I like spiders. So there's spider webs everywhere. <laughs> I'm a fly fisherman. So I was tying my own flies. So she saw uh, dead animal skins everywhere, like uh, feathers and everything. Um, and then somehow she stuck around with me. And so because of that, uh, it's, I think she's seen me at my professional lowest and then slowly watching me rise. And every time it's just, now it's after that point, it just became celebration for her and me. Like uh, for her, I've seen her go through struggles and we got past that hard part. And uh, it's at the point now where we're like, oh, what's going to happen during the pandemic? And the pandemic is only like, you know, uh, it's only strengthened our uh are, it just it just confirmed that well thank God we we lucked into each other this way um, so yeah it's it's it, 
you know, I don't show the bad parts when I'm really, when the dogs throw up on the, on the floor or Billy, my biggest dog, we came home last week and he had shit all over my, my writing space. He had diarrhea and I, I didn't know. So I spent an hour cleaning it up. So I don't, of course I don't show that part, but in terms of like, uh, um, you know, I write all day. My wife does her work all day. She takes care of the dogs a bit. I hike with the dogs. I, I, I enjoy cooking. She enjoys bartending. <laughs> we we enjoy music while we watch stuff while we eat together, and then we watch something together. That's that is really my life, and I'm I'm again the luck that we were able to build this together. And this spot is because we got renovated, and we had to move so far out of Vancouver because we couldn't afford Vancouver. Uh, we didn't have enough money, and she found this area is called Lions Bay, and I didn't even look in Lions Bay because my I grew up here, so I knew it to be a rich area. We had a bunch of snobs, uh, so like a bunch of NIMBY people by the beach, but she found a listing and I didn't know that up the mountain were all blue collar people who had just lived there for generations and no one wanted to buy houses here because it's so far away. So it was so much cheaper. And she goes, how about this? I go, she goes, it's a half acre in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, oh, look at that. And then, yeah, she goes, you just have to move teaching jobs. And I'm like, oh, that's not bad. And we... And the listing was so ugly, the photographs and the older people who lived here had the old, old, no offense, the old overstuffed English furniture and tea and curio cabinets and all that kind of stuff. It didn't look like what it is. We didn't, even, everyone says, did you remodel? We're like, no, we just took out their furniture. That's what this is what it looks like. Amazing. Amazing. And so, yeah. And so we, 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 we put, yeah, we just, it's again, luck after luck. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I hate saying that because I know it's going to run out someday. Uh so, it, but, you know, count it while it happens. I mean, you could argue that a large dog with diarrhea shitting all over your writing space isn't great luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, that would have been a great picture to take and put on Twitter as a metaphor for Hollywood in some way. It feels <laughs> like there's, there's something there's something there. So yeah. what, what does the next three to five years look like for you like what what would success if you continue this run of luck what what where do you think you'll you'll be and what do you think you'll be doing um this is one of those weird things because my goal has always been to make a living writing and I, I i'm doing that right now but you know it's hollywood it could end any minute so my wife and i do own a small business uh and my goal is to get to a point where she could sell it we could just sell it. She doesn't have to work. She can do the things pursue, you know, she, she helped support me in, 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 uh, she, she's really good at protecting my, helping me protect my time so I could write and pursue this dream. Cause she'd seen me when I was teaching, I'd get up super early to write and then stay up late to, to write even more after work, after teaching and then coaching rugby. And she'd watch me do these things. And she goes, I just want you to focus on this so that after you do that, you can focus on me and the dogs. Right. So that's how we structured it. So now I want her to be able to focus on, you know, she's got stuff she wants to do. So that's the goal. Uh, I want her to be able to sell her small business and her turn to like find something that brings her immense joy. Uh, she loves what she's doing, but I think, I don't think it brings her as much joy as, as what I'm doing. Like, I think I get a lot of joy out of writing and stuff like that. So uh, that, and then I'd like something greenlit. I'd like a show greenlit. So I've got two this year. Hopefully one of them gets greenlit uh, and then spend some time in LA. Uh, my wife and I don't enjoy traveling too much, but we do like going to LA and spending time there. So if we could do that, come back here, that's, that's, that'd be, that'd be a, a great way to be. Amazing. 
You mentioned rugby. So you were a rugby fan? Yeah, I played rugby in high school. Uh, I, I, I played rugby in uh, what, a, a local club. Um, uh, that's where most of my inj- nagging injuries are from. Uh, my coach was a part of Team Canada. Uh, uh, I, I used to hang out with him uh, um, uh, and, until uh, he passed away. And, but then I, I ended up coaching it uh, for Killarney. That was the first school I got hired at. <laughs> Killarney, whiskey, <laughs> it's uh, rugby. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I just it's just rugby was a big, it was the first sport because I was not an athletic person uh, growing up. I was someone who tried to be athletic and just was just mediocre. But Rugby was the first sport because uh, I realized I don't mind being hit. That was the first time I realized I don't mind being hit. I'm very elusive because I, I was a break dancer. And so one thing, if you're an outside or inside center, dancing lateral movement helps. <laughs> and uh, uh, just an awareness of who's around you, who's about to tag you, you know, just, just a, 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 it's a good position for me. And if, if someone big was about to tackle me, I always got the wing to give it to. <laughs> Amazing. Because I know often like in rugby, players who were particularly nimble would be sort of nicknamed things like twinkle toes and so on. So the yep. fact that you were actually a dancer is probably quite, quite useful for the sidesteps and so on. My rugby coach, remember this was the eighties and my rugby coach would always call me tripod when girls were around and they didn't know it was because I, I, I hurt my leg. So I was on crutches for most of the season. But then when the girls would come by, we we're on a trip to LA doing a, a rugby tour and he would say, yo, tripod. And everyone would call me and then, you know, just whenever girls came by, he would do that. That was such an eighties thing for a rugby coach to do. Yeah. Extraordinary. Um, so look, one thing changing, I guess, tack, but also changing seriousness, seriousness levels. Um, Cause whiskey is about having conversations that are fun, but also about serious things. Let's talk about diversity because the world has changed and the, Recent Oscars is yet another example of how far things have changed. So I'd love to get your perspective, you know, given your, your upbringing, the fact that you're, you're writing, that you're getting involved in Hollywood. How do you, but you're still an outsider in some way. So I'd love, you know, geographically, I'd love to get your sense of what sort of how diversity has, is changing and how you feel about that and how you perceive that. I can only talk about diversity uh, f- from my vantage point specifically because my black friends, it's, it's so different for them. Whenever I talk about something, their experience, because I feel like uh, black people in America have been fighting this a lot longer <laughs> than Koreans. We're, Koreans have only been coming to America since like the late 60s, 70s in, in, in terms of like huge waves, um, uh, like a migration wave. So I feel like, and then my, you know, my Chinese friends, they've been at it longer than Koreans. Uh, Japanese friends have been long, you know, it's, it's, so I feel like as a Korean, um, we have been sort of like been able to sit on the sidelines and, and watch the dynamics and then partake when a, an opening happened. But at the same time, uh, uh, you know, again, the seventies being in Canada in the seventies as an Asian kid, in Mississauga, Ontario, meant I got into I got picked on a lot, uh, and then being raised by a Korean father meant I was expected to fight back, even though I was a, a, in, in, at heart I was not I'm not a fight I don't like that kind of stuff I'm a, I'm someone who prefers to just make jokes, and then I had to, a, anyways, uh, but I was also a storyteller in that environment, so the way I coped with it was uh, making people laugh, putting people at ease, and being the peacemaker. Uh, and, and just a seeker once in a while. <laughs> um, but my storytelling came from the, from whatever I saw on TV. So 
I, I, I wrote all my scripts with a white lead, uh, all white characters. Maybe there was a, 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 an Asian character on the side. Um, and it wasn't until like maybe the late 90s that I started thinking about, man, it'd be cool to have more Asian characters. Um, you know, of course, when I watched TV, I thought of that. But as a writer, that wasn't, I didn't even think of that for writing. It didn't even enter my head. I feel like when Parasite won all those awards, a switch went off. It became like it opened the floodgates. It, I joked the night of the Academy Awards. I wrote a joking email to my agent and manager. Hey, reminder, I'm Korean. And they both wrote back, oh, believe us, we know. And that was a switch that I could tell all my, and everything I sold since then has been about every Korean story I've wanted to tell. And people are clamoring for this. I had to actually go back to one old screenplay that I wrote with a white character that was originally about a Korean guy, uh, partly me, that I wrote as a white character. Now I, I had to rewrite it back to what I had originally conceived of as a Korean character. Um, so, so diversity for me is like, it was it, when people talk about struggles, for me specifically, it wasn't a struggle. It was an obstacle uh, on how I viewed myself and my voice in the world and, and my role in the world. Mm. Um, but, but something happened with Parasite where I was able to more authentically talk about me and my stories and their place in the world. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, been, it's been great just from that very specific viewpoint. Yeah, fascinating. And obviously, I, there's, have you watched movies like Mortal Kombat? Um, and I mean, like, you know, the, the lead in Invincible, which I'm very much enjoying as a show, like it, it the, the world has definitely not just changed, but it's dramatically shifted quickly. But these shows are, you know, they don't feel, they just feel like they, they're right. It doesn't feel like somebody's overcompensating. You know, I've, I remember going to Namibia when I was a sports journalist years ago, and they had a quota system for black players in the cricket team. And, it, you know, they were trying to make a correction rightly, but it didn't work. It didn't feel authentic. It yeah. felt forced. And both sides hated the quota for different reasons. What's happening now just feels like, you know, it's, it's long overdue, but it, it feels like, why, why did we never have characters like this? Why did these people never have these opportunities? I just binged a series, uh, Shadow and Bone. Um, and mm. Eric Heiserer, who I admire, one of my favorite writers, he, I heard an interview with him where he talked about, um, I saw a picture of his, his writer's room. It was so diverse. And the show itself is diversely cast. And it's not, it doesn't strike you at all as at no point was it a stunt. At every point, it was a necessity. And when he talked about why he had uh, diverse uh, writers, he said, it was not, not a, he wasn't even thinking a quota system or anything like that. It was, it was like, I need these people to tell these character stories. Uh, and the lead character, she's, she's half Asian, uh, the actress who plays it. So he, and they turned the character half Asian, or I, I never read the book, so I don't know if that's original. But he needed the writer. He had to lean on one of the writers, uh, half Asian woman, uh, to access his main character. Uh, you know, and she's not the showrunner, but he said, you know, what would, what were you feeling back then? Like, like it was real authentic. She was able to pull out all these authentic things from her real life to inform these characters. And you see it on the screen. Like it's, it's so believable. It's so, it's so every, every frame, every moment, there's not a false moment in that series. Uh, and it's in, in, in this, in this huge production and it's, it's incredible uh, how he's able to dig into that. And he, and he always credits the diversity of his cast, which he did because of the necessity of the storytelling, not because of some quota system. And yeah. that's the first time I saw it. Uh, I've heard it worded that way, backed up by the production worthy of those words. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'll be honest, Paul, I could, I know some podcasts run long. I could do this for another couple of hours. Like, it's <laughs> fascinating talking to you, but I, I have my podcast always at a certain length. So I'm going to have to rather sadly for me, move on to our final question. And the final question is, as always on this podcast, if you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, what would it be, and where would it be? I would want to drink a Yamazaki 18 with the historical Jesus. And 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 just at, just see how he takes it because I I don't think he's a whiskey guy. He's very obviously a wine guy, and, and just just watch his face as he drinks it. And, and I wouldn't ask him any questions. I just watch the way he would drink it, react to it, and 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 see what questions he would ask me. You could always tell a lot from someone's character by the questions they ask you and the questions they don't ask you. I could, and I and that's why I like you so much because the questions you, I always hear you ask, you're a genuinely curious person. And I'm always I'm always suspicious of people who never ask questions. Uh, so I, I'd be very curious to see what Jesus asks me and doesn't ask me. Okay, so an 18-year-old Japanese whiskey with with historical Jesus. I like the way you put historical Jesus. I don't know, as opposed to what? Jesus? Because I, 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 whenever I say that, people have different images. I want, I want people to imagine the Aramaic Jesus walking up to me. We don't even talk the same language. I just pour the Yamazaki 18 into probably his first look at a real whiskey glass and just like look at each other, uh, 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 touch glasses and, 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 and see what he's, cause he's, he's, he's like, if he could talk to me, uh, I, I'd, I'd get a sense of his God power. I'd get a sense of his true compassion. I'd, I'd, I'd find out why does, why are so many guys into this guy? Fascinating. Oh, you have to do a wear as well. Would, would... Oh, geez. That's different. You know, at that time, I'd probably, because it's a history thing, and I've learned if I ever go into a time machine, I need to stay in Korea. So probably back, I'd, I'd, I'd take him back to, I'd take him back to 1990 Korea. Uh, I heard it's really banging there. So I could take him to like a karaoke room uh, in, in its heyday uh, in, in Seoul, Korea, drinking Yamazaki 18, uh, where I would feel safe. So we have had one of our, this is the 73rd episode of this podcast. We have had one guest have Jesus as his person before. He didn't specifically call him historic Jesus, but I think it was the same one. But I, as an answer to the question, when I started this podcast and I decided this would be my standard final question, I never thought that somebody's answer would be Yamataki 18 with historical Jesus in a karaoke bar in 1990. South Korea, but if you don't ask the question, you never get those answers. So, <laughs> Paul Bay, this has been beyond fascinating. So, I am so pleased that you were able, when I asked you to come on, I know how busy you are. So, you were like, come back to me in a few weeks. And I came back and you said, right, I'm free for this one hour tomorrow. <laughs> I'm delighted we did this. Thank you so much. I can't wait for you to come to Los Angeles when it's safe to do so. And when your one of your projects is greenlit, and I will take you out and show you one of the best bars in Los Angeles and try and get you off White Claw. I am looking forward to that. And I'm, I'm taking that as a promise and we'll definitely do that. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Dan. Mm, I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on 
Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>